We have a special treat this evening, um, a guy who doesn't need probably too much introduction for most of you, but uh, if you don't yet know Jeff Flint, here he is. Jeff, yeah. <laughs> Jeff's first and foremost a good friend of mine, and we went to Regent together and graduated together, uh, and he is the pastor at First Baptist Church downtown, and uh, we love each other, our churches love each other. Yeah. And he is preaching, bringing the word tonight. So would you give him a warm welcome and uh, bring a brother. Always good to be with friends. Always good to be uh, with people worshiping the Lord together. Um, so thank you for always welcoming me just graciously and joyfully. Uh, I want to start our time in the Word, uh, in the Word of God tonight in Romans chapter 8. I want to invite you to turn with me there uh, as we read the scripture text, uh, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 1, and uh, I want to invite you, if you are able, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word? And as we seek to understand the word, we always stand under the word in order to understand it. Romans chapter 8, starting verse 1, going through verse 11. You there? You got it? Give me a little head nod. Yes? Awesome. Love it. Therefore, Paul says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus... The law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed or controlled by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is Life and peace. That sounds good, doesn't it? Verse 7. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to, to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. You guys have been talking about who you are in Christ. Paul, in his other letters, in 1 Corinthians, talks about over and over again, who you are, be who you are, live into who you are. Here he says, you are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit 
who lives in you. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for um, your man, the Apostle Paul, uh, who speaks such good words to us tonight, speaks such good words to our world tonight. We pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear from you. We pray that you would draw us deeper into the reality of these words, the truth of these words, the grace of these words, the freedom of these words, the fullness of these words. And I pray that you would be our teacher as we, as we dive in. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. All right, so for, uh, for our kids, for my kids at my house, we have, I have a son who is nine years old. I have a son who is six years old. Wednesday is their last day of school. By the way, kids, if you have any paper or... Uh, Anything to draw on, maybe your bulletin or something, I invite you to try and draw my sermon tonight. Whatever that means to you, whatever word you hear, try to draw my sermon tonight. Um, I don't know if you have, if you, do you guys get out of school on Wednesday? Yeah? Wednesday, half day? Yes. Uh, my kids are very excited about that. <clears throat> we dive into our summer schedule the next day at the Flint House. Um, I don't know about you, I don't know why, but um, my kids, whenever, you know, whenever they don't have to go to school, they wake up very, very early. Uh, on the days they do have to go to school, it's like trying to wake up a wet noodle. Uh, it's impossible. And I'm sure it's only just begun. Uh, well, my youngest son in, just is finishing up his kindergarten year this year over at Columbia, and this year in kindergarten, Levi has learned what he uh, has, has called famous words, right? We've le- you learn the famous words, words like in, words like the, words like um, as and a, you know, those kind of famous words that you see a lot, me, you know. Um, well, what I'd like to do is take a look at this famous word that we have here tonight, Fam- one of the most famous passages in all the Bible, uh, may, if you've grown up in the church world at least, if you haven't grown up in the church world, uh, by the way, this is one of the famous ones in the church world. Uh, famous passage that's so near and dear to so many people's hearts. Uh, Romans 8 may be one of the best chapters of the whole Bible, if not the best. Uh, it's one of those chapters that can really sit in your soul for a good long while, can make your soul the best soul that it can be. I'm thankful for words like these from Paul, from our friend, our pastor. It, 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 uh, it reminds us, we realize when we go to read it that these words end up reading us. And it's exactly what we need to hear at exactly the right time. And these are words that understand you and what you need in the moment. Uh, I'm reminded uh, of a story of another teacher, a very, very old teacher who lived a long time ago. His name was Emile Callier, he was a French, he was a French person, a French man. He taught uh, at a number of different schools. His last school he ended up with uh, was at Princeton Seminary, taught uh, philosophy there at Princeton, Princeton Seminary. A little fist bump from Ryan up there. 
Uh, so he grew up in the early 1900s, not believing in Jesus, not believing in the Bible. He didn't really care much about religion, didn't really care about uh, anything uh, of, uh, that, uh, on that religious level, for that matter. Um, the horrors of World War I and the way that his life was going uh, during that time, it made him cynical of any belief in any overarching God or being good, benevolent being. Uh, but as God likes to do with various people, with, with us, uh, Emile Callier married a woman who was a Christian. She was a Christian. Um, Callier was so frustrated with his life, he was trying to find some way to make sense of his life that he found himself longing for something that would speak to his life, some kind of book that would understand him, is, is how he put it. He was looking for a book that would understand him. Uh, he couldn't find any book that could do that for him, so what he started to do was carry around this little notebook with him, and he would uh, fill that uh, little notebook up with uh, these quotes and phrases that he thought were profound at the time that he that, that he read them. It's like what many people do today when they, they see an inspira uh, inspirational quote or an inspiring quote and they post it on Facebook. And uh, it'd be like uh, taking all those quotes that you and your friends put on Facebook and putting it into a little notebook and carrying it around with you and creating this book that would get you through life's uh, troubles. And he says this. He says, these quotations, which I numbered in red ink for easier reference, would help me through the fear and anguish of my life. That was his hope. What, uh, when he had put what he thought was the final touches on this book that would finally speak to his condition, finally help him through his life's troubles, uh, he went out and sat under a tree and he started reading this little book that he created. But as he read this book, instead of bolstering him, he found that it totally deflated him. It did not give him what he thought he needed because it merely reminded him of the circumstances in which he first wrote those quotes and phrases down. They didn't offer any hope for him. He says this about his experience. Then I knew that the whole undertaking would not work simply because it was of my own making. It carried no strength of persuasion. And so in a, in a dejected mood, I put the little book back in my pocket. Meanwhile, his wife, unbeknownst to Emile Callier, his wife had, was uh, out shopping in a uh, little French market there and she stumbled on a place that sold Bibles, and so she bought a Bible. She didn't know quite how Callier was going to react to the news that she had bought a Bible, him being a non-religious person. And so when she told him what she had done, he exclaimed to her surprise, A Bible, you say? Where is it? Show me. I've never seen one before. So he got this Bible. He began to read it, and then he began to read it some more. He just read it and read it and read it. My son likes to read books all night long. He would read books all night long with a little flashlight on his bed all night long if I let him. Emile Callier read that book 
read the Gospels all night long, and he says this, Lo and behold, as I looked through them, the one of whom they spoke, the one who spoke and acted in them, became alive to me. I could not find words to express my awe and wonder, and suddenly the realization dawned upon me. This was the book that would understand me. Perhaps nowhere are we better understood than when, Paul, than when Paul writes what he writes here in Romans chapter 8. And especially what he says right before Romans chapter 8, which Nicole's song was perfect for what Paul says right before chapter 8. At the end of chapter 7, at the end of that chapter, Paul is talking about how frustrated he is with his life, how frustrated he is that he is not the person that he wants to be. He's frustrated that he's not the man that he wants to be. He's not the man that he knows that he should be. He's frustrated. He's struggling. He says, I don't understand what I'm doing. What I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. I think about it for my own life. I don't want to yell at my kids when they are being obstinate and stubborn about getting in the bath, brushing their teeth, and going to bed, but that's what I end up doing sometimes. I want to be a great husband for my wife and do all the dishes, fold all the laundry with, the, with this uh, self-sacrificial attitude, this joyful spirit. I love doing the laundry. I love doing the dishes for you babies. Uh, but if I'm honest, many times I resent the fact that we have so many loads of laundry to do. It never seemed to end. Uh, I want to be a great dad and always ride bikes, always throw the ball with my kids. Sometimes, you know, uh, just being honest here, I'm tired. I've had a hard day. I just want to veg in front of the TV. What I want to do, I don't do. And what I don't want to do, I do. I end up doing. And then I feel really terrible about doing it, which brings all this guilt and frustration heaped upon the fact that I already know that I did this terrible thing. Paul understands me. This book understands me. Nicole's song understands me. Paul knows that there's something broken inside of him. He knows there's something broken in this world. He knows there's this inner turmoil inside of him that's trying to figure out how to handle this battle inside, what to do with this struggle. And it all builds to this climactic point at the end of chapter 7 where Paul exclaims, who will save me from all this turmoil? Who will save me from this body of death? And, the, and he answers his own question. And because it's the Bible and this is church, the answer is, of course, Jesus, right? You, you've heard that joke, right, about the Sunday school teacher saying, what's brown and uh, has a bushy tail and climbs trees and the little girl raises her hand and says, well, I think it's the squirrel, but I'm going to say Jesus. Because <laughs> the answer is always Jesus in church. But for here... For, for, for Paul, that is, it is the answer. We, we look at the turmoil of our world. We look at the sin and the evil present in our world. Like what we saw today, right? We see that. We cry out with all of creation, all of our country, all the world. Who will save us from all this that's going on? Paul answers his own question when he says, thanks be to God. Jesus Christ can and does do something about our situation. So he's wrestling with 
this turmoil inside of him. He's wrestling with this turmoil that we see inside all of us and in our world. Who can save us? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, he begins chapter 8. That's what that therefore is there for. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he has done something about our situation. Paul's explanation in these first 11 verses of chapter 8 is about how Jesus saves us from this body of death. He gives us himself, what we call the Holy Spirit. He gives us his very self, the Holy Spirit. The very life of Jesus himself is given to us through his Holy Spirit. And as a result, Paul gives us these, he drops these two bombshells that we're going to look at tonight about this life-giving spirit that he gives to us. He says that this life-giving spirit, first of all, fills you. So this life-giving spirit. Spirit fills you, and the life-giving Spirit frees you. We are filled up, and we are freed up. Verses 9 through 11, towards the end of what we read, Paul says that the life-giving Spirit of Jesus fills you up. Maybe you noticed uh, throughout throughout these last few verses about uh, all the different ways Paul puts it. God. The Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, where the Spirit is, there is God. God himself takes up residence in you three times. He talks about uh, being in the Spirit or, or the Spirit of Christ in you. If Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. He's trying to remind us that this very spirit of God fills you up, lives in you. God himself dwells in you. All of who God is is living in all of who you are. When you open your heart to God, when you open your heart to Jesus Christ, when you invite him in, he gives you his life, he gives you his spirit, the spirit enters in, and uh, he's going to stay a while. He's going to hang around. He's going to be like that person who hangs around at your house and never leaves. But do you realize the audacity of what Paul is saying? The Holy Spirit of God now lives inside of you. And this is no weekend visit that we're talking about here. We're not talking about a few days here, or I think I'll make a little visit here to my friend's house, a few days there. Uh, when God comes, he comes and lives with you, lives in you. We're not talking about even an extended period of time, some length of time. We're not talking about snowbirding or something. God's just going to snowbird here for six months, and then in better climates, he's going to snowbird over here. We're talking about the Holy Spirit taking up a permanent residence in your life. Now, I was talking to a friend the other day, and he was telling me that his uh, mom was coming up to visit for a couple weeks. Uh, I met her today at uh, First Baptist this morning, and so uh, I got to meet her. She's from out of town, from Florida, um, so I, uh, not from Orlando, but, uh, but from Florida. So, I, so I, when he told me that she was coming, I asked him, oh, hey, is, is she going to stay with you? Uh, he said, oh, no, my, it's, my apartment's too messy for her to stay in. 
Now, I, you know, I'm the same way. When someone's coming over for a visit or when uh, they're coming over, we have people over for a get-together or a dinner or something at our house, we're gonna, we clean up our house. We, we clean it up. In fact, sometimes we have people over just so we are forced <laughs> to clean up our house. We have, an ex- we, we have to clean it up. Um, at our house, it's Legos. Every flat surface in our house is covered with Legos. Uh, my mom is coming up for a visit uh, in a couple weeks, end of June, <coughs> from Texas with my dad. And so you know that I'm going to clean up my house for my mom. And that's only for a visit. I'm going to make it look good for my mom. Uh, I'm going to clean it up for my mom because I love my mom. I want to honor her. I want to respect her. I want to make my home a nice place for her to hang out and visit. They're only here for a week. When someone comes and lives with you, maybe some of you have had people live with you for a time. When someone does that, it changes the way that you live, or at least it makes you more aware of this other person living with you and how you are yourself. Uh, maybe if you, if you live in a big old house, maybe it's not that big of a deal. You can kind of separate and go your own spaces. But if you're in a smaller space or if you're in a smaller apartment, where you go and that person's living with you, where you go, there they are. Uh, what you eat, there they are. Uh, you guys smell the same smells. You, what you watch, they watch. Uh, they know what underwear you launder and fold. Paul is talking about the holy God of all creation moving in. And he never leaves. He's not just coming for a visit. He's going to stay for a while. So the question that I ask myself, how is my house? How, what is the state of my house? What is the state of my heart? Uh, what are you watching that he is now watching? What are you reading that he is now reading? What is the dirty laundry that you're leaving out all over the place that you think, oh, I'll just clean it up later? Um, <clears throat> I was walking into my home office the other day and, in my backyard and um, I have a little office in my backyard, and I walked in, and something smelled funny. Something smelled funny in my office. I'm like, what in the world is that? So, you know, I go and do my, my prayer time, my Bible reading time, and I'm just praying. I'm, just, I'm smelling this smell. I'm like, what is going on in here? Uh, so I open my eyes, and uh, there on one of my bookshelves, on the top shelf of my bookshelf, is my son's sock. Who knows how long it had been there? Who, know long, who knows how long uh, it's been there? But, uh, you know, there, there was his dirty laundry up there on my bookshelf. And I think about that for my own self. What am I leaving out when God comes to visit? God himself comes to live in you. This is totally different from any other religion. Islam and Judaism would be appalled at such a holy God doing such a thing. This is not some impersonal light spark inside of you as though some impersonal force or feeling connects you with your deepest, truest self. This is a personal living God entering into relationship with you, the most personal relationship you could ever have. This is incredible what Paul is even talking about. God living inside of you. But it gets even better. When he fills you, the life-giving spirit then frees you. 
Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. He fills you and he frees you. Uh, my wife Bethany and I were talking just uh, last Friday. The kids had off of school last Friday. We shared a sitter with some friends because the kids were out of school. And so we were talking about, and, you know, as we were working it out with this sitter coming over to our house. And um, we were trying to gather onto one page just some of the general family rules that we have at our house. Uh, and when we got past, when we filled up one page of rules we'd uh, realize, wow, we've got a lot of rules at our house. Uh, we talked about how many rules that we realized we, that we had for our kids and trying to communicate that to our sitter who lives by a different set of rules. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the kids, the other kids who were coming over to our house living by their own set of rules at their house. You know, we were like, wow, there's a lot of rules for our kids to follow. Um, now, the rules are there to help them with their life, but a lot of times, at least it seems like for our kids, they're really hard to live with. Kids, are, are, your, are the rules sometimes hard to live with for you? Sometimes it feels as if my kids consider those rules are there just so they can be broken and they can see what they can get a, away with. The rules don't really free them up because then uh, we, we seem to remind our kids all the time what the rules are. We're... Feels like we're always reminding them what the rules are. Paul here, coming from a background, when he was a kid, he was taught all the rules of God that were in his Hebrew classes, Hebrew scripture. Follow those rules, you'll be okay with God. The problem was, as he says here in Romans 8, is that those rules can't really take away what's really wrong with us. You can't, those rules can't take away our sin, it can't free you from your sin. The law of God can't save you from your body of death. The law just shows how often you are a sinner. Even if you were perfect and kept all the rules all the time, it wouldn't set you free. You would just feel the tyranny of perfection. Now you've got to stay perfect. Uh, think about when I was in sixth grade. I was a trombone player all through middle school and high school. Still am a trombone player. And first chair was the top spot that you wanted to be. First chair. Man, I loved being first chair. But being first chair, I had to work harder to keep first chair than to get first chair because everybody else wanted first chair as well. Does that make sense? I worked harder to keep first chair than to, than to get first chair. I was more worried. I was more anxious, scared about losing first chair than I, than I was happy that I got first chair. I couldn't enjoy being first chair for too long. Uh, I remember one time I forgot my music, and I had to go down to last chair. And I could, something inside of me, I couldn't stop it. I just started bawling. I just started crying. My little sixth grade self just crushed down to last chair. Uh, if, you've ever seen the movie, uh, if you've ever seen the movie Whiplash, you adults, if you've ever seen the movie Whiplash, it's a story about a jazz band teacher uh, who just who pushes his players his jazz band players to the brink of insanity in pursuit of their perfection. He berates his students over and over again. He drives his players to getting it right, getting it right. The movie focuses on the drummer of this band. The drummer in that movie aims for perfection. He drives himself mad to the point of despair. 
It did not set him free. It kept him bound. And there's one scene where he's practicing and he bleeds all over the drum set because he's practicing so hard and so long, trying to get perfect, trying to achieve what he could never achieve. He bleeds all over the place. And it makes me think about only one person's blood truly has the power to free us. Well, only one person's blood truly has the power to make us who we want to be. Only one person's blood truly has the power to free us. For what the law was powerless to do, Paul says, God did. Following the rules was, didn't do it, but God did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sinful offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man. Did you notice that little turn around there? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What now has received the condemnation? It's the sin inside of those who are in Christ Jesus. I love that little turnaround that Paul does. Not he, uh, God doesn't condemn you. He condemns the sin in us. Paul continues, In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Set you free. When you become a Christian, there is no more punishment. There is no more death penalty. There is no more guilty verdict. God has forgiven you. God has removed your sin as far as the east is from the west. Condemnation doesn't even exist for you because of what the law was powerless to do. God did. Um, this is no pulling of the, of the daisy petals saying, well... I messed up today. He loves me not. I'll ask for forgiveness. He loves me. Oh, oh, I sinned again today. He loves me not. But I ask for forgiveness. He loves me. This is no daisy petal theology here. He always loves you. He is in your life permanently. He is not going to leave you. He is not going to give up on you. Here's what's so interesting to me. Um, we should not be filled with uh, conviction over the sin in our life because of fear. We should not be uh, uh, wanting to be righteous. That's just a big fancy word for being rightly related with God, rightly related with each other. We should not want to be rightly related to God because we're so afraid of what he's going to do to us if we mess up or we afraid, we're so afraid that he is going to condemn us. We should be convicted of sin because this wonderful person has come in to live with us permanently and he's never going to leave you. He would rather die than leave you. I think about it when my, mom, when my mom comes. I love her so much, I want my house to honor her, reflect her, not be dirty and nasty when she comes over. We want to be righteous because God is coming over. God is moving in. Frankly, he would rather die than leave you. What in the world could you do to break his love for you when, in the Garden of Gethsemane, God came to Jesus and said, I'm going to crush you with all the powers of hell, with all the sin of the world, with all the evil of the world. Do you love these people that much? Jesus said, yes. Not my will, but yours be done. If Jesus Christ takes all of that hell that the Father lays on his shoulders if his love for you was that strong, if he valued you that much, what in the world do you think you're going to do to kick him out? <laughs> Some of you wonder if Jesus is going to look at you and say, and uh, throw up his hands and be like, uh, that does it. That's, uh, 
the final straw for that person. Uh, I've, I've tried and I've tried, I've tried and I've tried, and it's just never happened. Jesus never says that. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the Father poured infinite suffering on Jesus, and Jesus didn't say that. Not my will, but yours be done. His own Father wasn't able to dissuade him. If the Father wasn't able to break his grip and his love for you, then you can't do it either. We should be convicted of sin because of this person who has given his very life for you. This person is not just staying with you for a weekend visit. He's all in, all day, every day. He gives his Holy Spirit. You know, I'm talking God, I'm talking Jesus, I'm talking the Holy Spirit. You know, it's, it's hard to keep them separate because they go together all the time. Okay, so uh, when I say God, I'm talking about <clears throat> filling you up. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit filling you up, Jesus filling you up. It, it uh, kind of blows your mind if you, if you think about it too long. Uh, but, but the Holy Spirit fills you up, Paul says. The Holy Spirit frees you up, and he will never, ever, ever leave you. So how's your heart? How's your soul? How does it respond to the gospel that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Our world needs to hear these words. What, who's going to save us from this body of death, from this sin? Who's going to save us from the plight of our world? Who's going to save us from the, the situation, from the condition our world is in? Thanks be to God, Jesus Christ himself. One of my favorite quotes that uh, I've ever heard <clears throat> that I, I can't ever get out of my mind uh, is by E. Stanley Jones who says, the early church didn't look at the world and say, oh my gosh, what, are the what is the world coming to? Right? The early church looked at, out at the world and said, look who has come to the world. I love that quote. Because, because it's about what Jesus has done to save us from our body of death. Let's pray together. God, thank you for um, your work. Um, help us to be absolutely floored by the fact that you take up residence in our hearts. Help us to be mindful of that with what we let in our eyes, with what we let out of our mouths. Help us to be mindful of that as we love our kids. Thank you for the way that my kids forgive me over and over and over again. Freely and abundantly. They, they show me your grace. Help us to set our minds on you each and every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.